Would you turn to the book of um, Hosea, and we're coming to Hosea chapter 11. Uh, remember, you have those big prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. Minor uh, just because they're smaller in size, not because they're smaller in significance, but Hosea chapter uh, 11, and we'll read from verse 1. And when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he will not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Amen. I mean, God will always bless the reading of his word. A few years ago, the Times Educational Supplement carried out uh, a survey on children's ideas of God. Uh, let me give you some of the contributions that were received. James, another James, aged seven, God is very kind and handsome. God gives me and some people what we want. I think he wears a red coat and has a white beard. Emma, aged seven, God is the father of Jesus I like God because he puts ideas in my head when I'm in trouble in my tests. Rachel, age six, I think God is a very nice man and kind to everyone. But perhaps the most revealing of all is that from Robert, aged eight, I think God is just like us. I think God is just like us. But do you notice the one thing that is conspicuous by its absence from those, uh, in those statements from those juvenile theologians? There is no concept of the otherness of God, what theologians call the transcendence of God. As Robert says, I think God is just like us. Now, Robert's not alone in that because most people in this world think exactly the same. When the average person thinks of God, they conjure up a picture of a cross between a bodybuilder and Santa Claus, someone who is uh, benign, fatherly, a 
benefactor, uh, someone benevolent, someone who wouldn't say boo to a goose. And the reason for that is that they have taken the one attribute of the love of God, and they have exaggerated it to such an extent that they have developed totally an unbalanced and distorted concept of God. And even among Bible-believing Christians, I think that's the case. God is love, people say, and He is. But they have so emphasized that attribute at the expense of all other attributes that their understanding of God is unbalanced and far from biblical, a cuddly, cozy, compassionate care bear who just wants to uh, cuddle us in our lives. But there's even a deeper problem than that. Not only is there this overemphasis on the love of God at the expense of all other attributes, there's also a tendency to understand His love and interpret His love in human terms. As Robert said, God is just like us. So we see His love and understand His love in a way uh, that reflects the way that we love. So because our love is gushy, mushy, and gooey, His love ends up gushy, mushy, and gooey too. Uh, And we end up with a God who is no bigger than ourselves, a heavenly Santa Claus who wouldn't say boo to a goose. Martin Luther once wrote to the 16th century humanist, uh, a man called Erasmus, and he said, your thoughts on God are too human. That was Robert's problem. That's society's problem at large, and that's our problem. We all think of God as one who is just like us, especially when it comes to the love of God. Now, that's what makes Hosea 11 uh, all the more extraordinary, because in Hosea um, 11, Hosea presents to us the love of God in an amazingly human way. He pictures God with feelings, with emotions, as one who is wounded and wounded deeply when that love is betrayed. One commentator describes Hosea 11 as one of the boldest chapters in all of the Old Testament in expressing the mind and heart of God in human terms. And yet, right in the middle of that love revelation, that love declaration, we read in verse 9, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. He loves and loves in an extraordinary way, but His love is in no way human. It's altogether different. It's divine love. Although Hosea delivered his message 700 years before the birth of Christ on the eve of Israel's destruction, nevertheless, the points that he makes are still as relevant uh, to us today as they were in his day. His love is different different than our love for five reasons. First of all, because of the initiative it takes. Look at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In human love, our love is reciprocal and conditional. We love because we, we are loved, or we love because of the loveliness of the object that our love is directed to. But God's love is one-sided. It's He who takes the initiative. Uh, He loves us in spite of our love to Him. 
We love him, the Bible tells us, because he first loved us. And you see that in the very first verse. Here the imagery of Hosea changes from that of a a wife to a son. And God is pictured as a man who finds an orphaned baby boy. The baby boy is in slavery in Egypt in bondage. But this man redeems him from slavery and makes him his only child. Out of Egypt, says God, when you were a slave in Egypt, when you had no interest in me, no thought in me, I called you my son. This is God taking the initiative, going into the slave market and delivering his people and making them his children. Notice he loved them while they were in Egypt. Notice they didn't call on him, but he calls on them. This is a unilateral, unconditional revelation of the love of God. Derek Kidner says God makes a choice as free as it was affectionate. It is a divine initiative, a gracious intervention, a loving declaration. Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because he loved you that the only explanation for Israel's redemption is the love that lies in the heart of God. That's the reason he loved us first. In other words, his love is a gracious love. It's unconditional, undeserved, and unsought. It's all of grace. You know the difference between kindness and grace. Imagine you went into Giuliano's one night, and a little boy of seven came in with a pound and ordered a poke, ordered a cone. And uh, the person behind the shelf says, do you want... um, toppings on that, and the little boy nods his, nods his head, and he puts the toppings on it, and he puts the syrup on it, and he hands it to him, and he says, that's one pound fifty with all the toppings, and the little boy puts a pound on the desk, and the man says, well, that's okay. You can take it. Well, that's kindness, kindness, but kindness isn't the same as grace. If you imagine that same little boy going into the shop, and the man goes into the back uh, uh, of the shop to get some new cones, and he pops round the the counter and helps himself to ice cream, and then is about to run out the door, and the man lets him take the ice cream. That's grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. God's love is gracious. It's undeserved. It takes the initiative. Human love is mutual and reciprocal. His love is unilateral and unconditional. For I am God and not a man. Uh, His love is different because of the initiative it takes. Secondly, because of the patient a patience it displays. Look at verses 3 and 4. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, and they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to feed them. These verses are remarkable. Here God is pictured as a father gently nursing his child through those precious early years. He supports his son by his arms as he takes those first faltering steps 
and then heals him when he falls, applying the savlon to the wounds. He leads them with leading reins. I think that's what uh, the opening line of verse 4 means. I, I led them with the uh, uh, cords of kindness. You remember those leading reins? You don't see them so much when you were teaching a children, your child to walk. You put these reins on just to keep them close. And if they stumbled and fell, you could support them and hold them up. That, that's the picture here. In verse 4, after lifting, lifting the yoke from their uh, jaws, their necks, I think the NIV 2011 translation is probably a little bit more uh, accurate. I lifted them to my cheek. Here's a warm I- I- embrace. Do you see the picture of tenderness, compassion, and love? Have you ever tried feeding a toddler? You know, when their mouth is shut firm and you hold the spoon uh, to their mouth and you're just about to put it in and they turn their head and you get it all over their cheek. Or you get the mouth, the spoon in with the baby rice on it and then they spew it out all over you. That's the picture of God's dealings with Israel. The loving Father who bends down to guide and feed and comfort and heal His people. Well, you might object, is that so different from any other father? I am a God and not a man. Well, remember the context into which uh, Hosea was writing. The ancient Near East where no father would ever bother with his children or take time with his children. That was woman's work. When, when we were young, uh, you know, I got scolded by Gail's mother and father for pushing the pram. It's not a man that pushes the pram. It's the, the, the girl, the woman that pushes the pram. Well, you think back um, 3,000 years then to the time of Hosea. Men didn't do this. I don't think Hosea could have described God's affection and patience with his people more clearly than that. I don't think even in the New Testament there's, there's a greater statement on the fatherhood of God. Uh, 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 there, God is tender and loving. And yet in spite of all the fatherly uh, goodness and kindness, how had this much-loved infant grown up uh, Well, look at verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. But this infant had grown up into an incorrigible, inconsiderate, ungrateful, moody, surly teenager. The more I call, God said, Israel, Israel, the more they went away from me and they sacrificed to the bills. I was hearing about a young fellow who came in from the country to study at Queen's and he was the first in his family ever to go to university and his parents from a quite a poor background scrimped and saved to make it possible for him to go. And he came from a Christian home and a fairly conservative church and I saw, I suppose he saw university as a, a chance to escape all the constraints of that Christian upbringing. 
and he broke off all contact with his parents. And when they hadn't heard from him uh, about December, they were frantic with worry. And so they contacted a minister of their same denomination to which they belonged and asked him, had he seen them? And he said, no, he, he hadn't seen them since, since September. But uh, he says, if you, if you come up, he says, I'll arrange for another student to be at the halls of residence and uh, we, we can get through the front door and we can go up and to his room and knock the door. So they set off to university. But as they were driving up the Malone Road, they saw their son walking down towards them. And they couldn't park on such a busy road. So the wife got out right in front of her son and went up to him and said, hello. And the son just stirred uh, at his, his mum, filled with, with embarrassment, turned around and ran away from her up the Boulogne Road and left the mother shouting, Peter, Peter, Peter. And they ignored her and kept running. Heart, heartbreaking. Well, that was Israel. In spite of God's goodness and compassion, his tenderness and love, Israel had gone after the gods of the Canaanites and offered sacrifices to them. And God had called him again and again, Israel, Israel, Israel. He sent prophet after prophet to call them to repentance, but they ignored them. They defied them. They rebelled against them. And now God, in a last-ditch attempt to reach his erring people, had sent Amos and Hosea, and they ignored them too. God's love is extraordinarily patient. He doesn't throw us out or cast us aside the first time that we feel Him. He comes again and again and calls us to Himself in repentance and faith. You young people, if you discovered your boyfriend or girlfriend was two-timing you, what would you do? Well, you'd dump them. You might give them one more chance, but God in His great patience, because of His great love, give chance after chance, opportunity after opportunity. He called them and called them, and He didn't dump them. But still, Israel wouldn't li uh, listen. This is a, an extraordinary picture of the patience and the love of God. The, the, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One says God. His love is altogether different because of the initiative it takes, because of the patience it displays. And then thirdly, because of the discipline it uh, administers. Often human love is nothing more than sentimentality, a, a love that fails to distinguish between capricious punishment and loving discipline. You only have to turn uh, the radio on and listen to one of these uh, campaigners who uh, are determined to outlaw uh, smacking. They use pejorative words like biting, like, like sorry, hitting, not biting, <laughs> hitting uh, violence and abuse. Violence solves nothing. They can't distinguish between child abuse and loving discipline. I remember listening to um, the Nolan Show on the radio and they had one of these campaigners on from Save the Children who was saying, you know, you mustn't physically discipline your children because it's, it's violent behavior and violence breeds violence. And there was a Christian mother on who was uh, 
brought in to engage her in the debate. And she said, well, you need to distinguish by different types of pain. There's one thing to cut with a scalpel to bring healing. And uh, it's an entirely different thing to cut with a knife to bring hurt. If you love a child, you will never discipline that child. That's the attitude. But divine love is a love that dares to discipline. And that's what God is saying in verses 5 to 7. Just look at those verses. Verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. In these verses that we are told that God is angry with his people and that he will punish his people, God has great patience, as we were thinking of last week, but he hasn't infinite patience. His patience can run out. He can reach the point where he says, enough is enough. You have disobeyed me once too often. You have rejected me and defied me once too often, and now I'm going to discipline you. And he says to them, you're enjoying your pagan gods? What about a little bit of pagan hospitality? How about going into bondage just to remind you of what it was like in Egypt? Instead of going back into Egypt, I'm going to take you into Assyria. If you think so little of my fatherly love, how about the pagan sword? They have resisted and refused me once too often, God says, and even though they call, at the end of verse 7, I will not raise them up. Within a few short years, Assyria invaded Israel, and her swords did rage in her cities, and the bars of the gates were broken, and Israel was carried in uh, to captivity. God's love for his people issued in real judgment and discipline. They had the velvet glove, and now they were going to have the iron fist. God, you see, does discipline his erring children. And it's precisely because they are his children, and it's precisely because he loves them that he disciplines them. The God whose fatherly love is described in verses 1 to 4 is the same God who exercises discipline in verses 5 to 7. Some people say, well, a God of love, a God of love would would never discipline. But it's precisely because he is a God of love that he dares to discipline. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says, that just as a father disciplines his children, so God disciplines those who love him. God has done wonderful things for us as Christians. He has chosen us. He has taught us. He has fed us. He has led us. He has forgiven our sins and blotted out our iniquities from his sight. But if if we as Christians turn our backs on him and defy his generosity and grace, we are naive in the extreme. If we think that because of that love, he will never lift one finger to discipline us. It's because he loves us, he dares to borrow a phrase from James Dobson's book on the rearing of children, because of his love that he dares to discipline us. Don't confuse the love of God with human sentimentality. For I am God and not a 
a man, the Holy One, in your midst. The love of God is different because of the initiative it takes, because of the patience it displays, because of the discipline it exercises, and then fourthly, because of the reluctance it produces. Look at verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Now, remember, Ephraim was the dominant tribe of northern Israel. So when Hosea refers to Ephraim, he's referring to Israel. Those terms are used interchangeably. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. These words must rank as the most remarkable in all of the Bible. Here God portrays himself as being inwardly divided, uncertain what to do, vacillating, full of contradictory emotions. And I don't think any Jew would dare write these words apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In them, God is pictured like an anguished father who wants to punish his son and hug him all at the same time. One commentator entitles his chapter on this portion of Hosea, Uh, as the troubled heart of God. These two cities mentioned, Adma and Zeboam, were the cities that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah at the time of Abraham. You can read about it there in Deuteronomy 29, 23. The mention of them uh, indicates that God's anger is such with Israel that he is in mind to totally annihilate them and to obliterate them as he had done with those cities. Yet no sooner has his righteous indignation demanded such an act of judicial retribution, his love revolts against the thought and insists that the judgment doesn't take place. Look at those words again in verses 8 and 9. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Do you see that pathos of those words. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. On the brink of judgment, God hesitates. How can I do this? How can I destroy the people that I love? That his love produces in his nature a reluctance to exercise judgment. It's an extraordinary picture. It's a divine dilemma. But what we need to understand is that this is not a human dilemma. It's not like a boy who discovers his girlfriend has two-timed him and been unfaithful to him, but because of his love for her, he can't decide whether to dump her or not. Any individual that treated their partner in the way that Israel had treated God would have been dumped years ago. It's precisely because he is not human that this reluctance occurs. Verse 9, that key verse, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. It's because he's glorious, because he's God, that he refuses to come in wrath. There's a wonderful picture. There's a reluctance in the heart of God to punish because of His great love for us. 
that there's a divine dilemma in the heart of God. Now, this is anthropomorphic language. It's, it's language uh, that, that describes God in human terms. The Baptist Confession tells us that God is without passions, that He's unaffected by uh, outward circumstances. He is uh, consistently um, consistent in Himself. But when Hosea wants to convey to us the extraordinary love of God, he paints the picture of the love of God in a way that we can appreciate that we uh, can hear his, his love expressed in human terms. God is pictured as wounded, as grieving, as one who is torn. His justice demands punishment, his love demands pardon, and his love moderates his justice. I want to ask you this morning, Are you causing a dilemma in the heart of God? Your spiritual indifference, your moral intransigence, your sinful tolerance provoking His anger, your worldliness, your prayerlessness, your compromise has grieved Him and has grieved Him deeply. And He calls to you, Israel, Israel, but still you resist Him and refuse Him. You snub the Lord of glory by ignoring Him. And in spite of all He has done for you, in your own way, you have sacrificed to the Baals and burnt incense to images. And you have broken the heart of God. And the reason He hasn't disciplined you is because of His great love for you that there's a reluctance in the heart of God because of His love for you. If you treated any human being, any person like you have treated Him, they would have dumped you years ago. The friendship would have ended. But I am God. I'm not a man. His love is altogether different because of the initiative it takes, because of the patience it displays, because of the discipline it exercises, because of the reluctance it it reveals, and lastly, because of the the call that it makes. Now, when we come to verse 9 and we read, I will not come in wrath, I will not come in wrath, we may be tempted to think that the judgment prophesied in verses 5 to 7 was avoided and abated. But that's not the case because we know that the Assyrian invasion actually happened. Assyrian swords did rage in in their cities and the bars of the gates of, of those cities were broken down and their plans came to an end. The wrath of God did fall. But God found a greater way and a better way to restore His wayward people. Look at verses 10 and 11. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. God found a way to resolve the dilemma between his love and his wrath. In an act of sovereign grace, 
God cut through the agonizing alternatives and found a way to express His love and satisfy His justice at the same time. Yahweh, we are told, will roar like a lion and His children will come trembling from the west, from the south Egypt, from the north Assyria, and He shall settle them once more in their homes." Now, what is that roar of Yahweh? What is that roar of the lion? In verse 2, Yahweh said, the more they were called, the more they went away. But Hosea is looking forward to a time when a more powerful, compelling, uh, effective call will come. And when that call is issued, they will come trembling. They will come with a new reverence for God at the roar of Jehovah. What is that roar? Well, it's the call of Christ, the powerful, effective call of the gospel. Hosea looks down through time to the cross to the place where the divine dilemma is is solved and where the wrath of God and the love of God are both satisfied. How can a God who is is just and a God who is love satisfy both His justice and His love at the same time? Well, at the cross, which is the great declaration of His love. But when Christ died in the place of sinners. It was the great satisfaction to his wrath, where love and mercy meet, where justice and love are are come together. I was reading about an oriental king 500 years um, before Christ, and he passed a law to deal with a moral problem that affected his kingdom. And the punishment to anyone who broke this law was that they would have both eyes put out. And his own son broke that law. And the king's justice as ruler demanded satisfaction. And the king's love as a father demanded pardon. So justice and love came together in that he put out one of his son's eyes. And he put out one of his own eyes. Justice and love were satisfied. And that's what happened to the cross. Sin was put on him. Punished, he was punished in our place so that his justice was satisfied. And by that loving act, that great demonstration of love, he is able to pardon sinners. Whereas where Paul says in, in Romans 5 that he can be the just, he can be just and the justifier of his people. Here is love vast as the ocean. Loving kindness as the flood, where the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above, and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. That's what verses 10 and 11 are pointing forward to, a time when God would restore his people in a way that neither compromised his justice nor denied his love. And the great demonstration of that love is a powerful call to a sinful people. It's a roar that comes from the throne of God. It's a roar that comes from 
the, the mouth of God. It's a roar that comes from the cross of Calvary. The dilemma is solved. His love has triumphed. And all who come to Him know what it is to be His people, the objects of His love, the recipients of His grace. Have you heard that call? The call of love, the call from the cross, the call from the throne of God, the call of Christ. You know, people become Christians for different reasons. A fear of hell. They want to escape hell. A desire for communion and fellowship with God. A longing for heaven. But there's no greater constraint than the call of the cross because that is the great demonstration of his love. How could anyone refuse or resist a God who is prepared to go to such extraordinary lengths to rescue us? The love of God, that's the roar of the lion of the tribe of Judah. I was reading about... um, an African village, and uh, in that village there was a fire, and uh, one of the villagers rushed into the, the burning flames and pulled out a little boy of, of five or six and uh, wrapped him uh, under his coat and brought him out of that burning um, hut. But his, his father and mother both perished in the flames. And so the village council was called to decide who was going to get this boy and rear this boy. And the chief said, I'll take him. I'll take him. After all, he says, I'm the chief. The teacher of the local school says, I'll take him. I'll take him. I can give him a good education and prepare him for the future. The most wealthiest man in the village said, well, well, I'll take him. I have have the resources to, to look after him. A relative came forward and says, no, no, he's my flesh and blood. I'll take him. And then one man came forward, poor, not much to offer. He held out his hands. And he had the burn marks from the flames on his hands. He says, I'll take him. I'll take him. And they gave them to him because he had a great personal cost to himself. Put his life in danger in order to rescue that boy. Here's the Lord of glory, and he came into our world. He suffered, bled, and died in our place. And he'll take us. He'll take us. That's, that's the call of, from the throne of God. That's the call from the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the roar that comes. How can we refuse anyone who has loved us to such a degree and to such an extent that he would lay down his life for us. Have you heard? Have you heard the cry? Have you heard the call, the call of the gospel? It roars this morning. And he's saying, come on to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The love of God is different, different. For I am God I'm not a man. It's different because of the initiative it takes, because of the patience it displays, because of the discipline it exercises, because of the reluctance it produces, and because of the call that it makes. Robert says, God is just like us. 
No. God, even in his love, is not like us. Amen.